talking with Ajahn Sumedho. He is an American bhikkhu, that means a Buddhist monk, and has been ordained for probably about 20 years and spent much of his time in his practice and training in Thailand, in the forests of northeast Thailand. And for the past 10 years, he's primarily been based here in um, uh, Britain and is now the abbot of Ambravati Monastery in uh, Hertfordshire and of uh, the Chittest Monastery in Sussex. And he made a remark to me which kind of stuck in my uh, mind, as sometimes people's remarks do. And he said, monks, uh, I like to think he'd include nuns in that, but he said, monks um, are to be a mirror to the world. And he was emphasizing in the course of that conversation with him the importance, really, of traveling lightly in the world, and in this case, in the material world. And those of you who have had any uh, exposure to the, particularly forest monks, uh, um, tradition will know that there is a discipline within it whereby one agrees to only keep uh, eight I think it's if I remember rightly some time since I had a head shave but anyway I think it's um, eight um, items and these uh, items include the razor, what else, and um, I think it's two sets of robes and a begging bowl and uh, one or two other items which I can't recall. And in that there is, as distinct from poverty, which of course is a social economic form of uh, slavery, this is uh, an expression of voluntary simplicity in which monk and nun take it upon, upon themselves to live with as little as possible and therefore to be virtually possessionless and in the Jain tradition of uh, India and to my another conversation with um, Satish Kumar, who is the editor of Resurgence and was a Jain monk. In that tradition, you lived without possessions at all, and you're totally dependent upon the um, support of others. And in a way, of course, it's a very austere uh, discipline and also it can be an opportunity to act for us uh, living in the world as we do as a mirror and to see and find out in ourselves what it means to travel lightly. And one of the things which has um, struck 
me with regard to this, that it's not per se by the number of possessions that uh, you and I may have, but it's rather the relationship to those. Because it's quite possible, and it's not at all unusual, for a person to have relatively few possessions and some people are extremely Scrooge-like and miserly and tight and can pride themselves, religious people and otherwise, on having very few possessions. But that person, that man, that woman is, is so incredibly, if not desperately, attached to the few possessions that one has that it completely hinders any opportunity in life to travel lightly. So, it's nothing much to take pride in, in having little. And certainly nothing to take pride in, in having a lot either. But really the relationship in this particular case is one small aspect of what it means to travel lightly. And another factor which goes along with that, and I can think of a number of... uh, examples in terms of um, people that I have uh, acquaintance with who, by anybody's standards, are um, extremely uh, wealthy. You know, so wealthy in fact that something like Gaia House wouldn't be big enough for their cat. And this kind of, well, for some people can completely consume them and uh, and the person's life. And for others, there may be this wealth, whether worked for or frequently, which is in- inherited. And the wealth, the property, the possessions, the investments, and all the outcome of it, really, and rather self-evidently, doesn't really have too much signif- significance, doesn't really have too much meaning for the person. So there's rather a lot outwardly, but inwardly, the attitude of it is, the person obviously isn't consumed and identified and imprisoned by that wealth. And I'm rather... I mean, in that respect, I would rather dispute what Jesus uh, said when he says um, it's more difficult for a rich man to get through the eye of a needle than to get into the kingdom of heaven. Something like that. Is that a right? Camel. Camel. Huh? Something camel. Oh, is it a camel, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, is it? A camel goes through the eye of the needle. Ah, right, that's it. It's easier for a camel. <laughs> well, um, apologies to Jesus for misquoting. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I think I'd perhaps rather say it's not, as I mentioned, the wealth per se. It's this relationship that. 
And relationship to that is, in a way, and pretty rather succinctly, how much time and attention and thought is actually spent in thinking about what one has, A, or what one doesn't have, which is even more, and also the relationship between the two, which is money. What one has, what one doesn't have, and the connection between the two, which is money, by its presence or by its absence. And in this travelling lightly in, in the world means that one must be pragmatic rather than romantically idealistic and idealistic in that we have needs and they are appropriate needs and we have to deal with money and we deal with what we have and what we don't have. But is one trapped in this? Does it take up one's thinking, one's, one's daily life? Does it bring out of us um, drive, competitiveness, ambition? You know, are we envious of others who seem to have more than what we do? How do we, how do we relate to the material world? And it seems to me that there's never any peace, I mean real peace of mind when we have that kind of preoccupation. And unfortunately we live in a world, in a society, which says that is the sunum bonum, that is that the supreme good is to be on the make. And this is generated out to us time and time again so that we end up measuring ourselves by how much we have or don't have. So we have to ask ourselves and to check in with ourselves how lightly am I travelling in the material world? Remembering it's not determined by the amount that we have. Another important uh, area of this uh, learning to travel uh, lightly, and sometimes I do feel that being travel, a number of you here uh, tra- uh, traveling, is a very, can be a very um, riching experience. And I think with many experiences, they may at times be working on the conscious level. You're you're on the road, you're going from A to B and C and so forth. And there can be appreciation of that, just sometimes momentarily. But frequently at deeper levels within ourselves, there's a lot more which is going on. And travelling implies a certain travelling lightly, because as we often find out, travelling with too much stuff is a hassle for oneself and for others. And it's in that one is often able to live and to put up with living conditions which one voluntarily wouldn't, generally wouldn't put oneself into. And to feel comfortable with it. And one has the knowledge of its um, temporary 
factor about it. And sometimes there can be real appreciation for the uncomplicatedness of one's life. And the sense for that can, hopefully, on a long-term basis, have a genuinely moderating outlook, in terms of oneself, about how one lives, with what one lives, and the way that one relates to the things that one lives with. And I, think, and I do, do feel in life one of the most um, underestimated um, of human experiences, which I think is truly uh, important and profound in its own way, is the experience of appreciation. In this case, the appreciation for doing without, for being without. And sometimes that touches us, that appreciation for being without. And to really allow that appreciation to the flow through to come through. Just at the uh, tea table this evening, we were talking, actually, uh, um, as a kind of second encouragement to give the talk on this theme, we're talking about um, travelling and I was recalling when I was uh, a monk um, donkeys years ago now, and being on an island in the, um, of Thailand in the Gulf of Siam. And this must be, actually, it's, yes, it's just about this time. It was in December. It was about 14 years ago. And there was a hurricane on its way. In those days, they used to call all the hurricanes by names of women. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the motivation was. And, um, right, that might be an example. Anyway, this one was called Hurricane Sally. That I do remember. And it had come from um, uh, Far East and was moving across into Thailand. And we were, uh, I had to go to the, the mainland and it was just two days before the hurricane came. And the, I don't know if you've ever been in um, hurricane, it's uh, pretty windy. <laughs> and this wind was already on, on route, so to speak. And we set out in this boat, I can't remember how many of us, 40, 50, and uh, the standing area of the boat was probably about the size of this room. It's like a big old houseboat. And the, the boat would go down into the trough. And, not a word of a lie, the, the, the waves would come up. And you'd be looking up at the waves, and all you could see, you couldn't see anything else but, but wave around you for about a split moment. And then the boat would come back onto the top and you'd have a quick look around and think, you know, and then, you know, life's a bit like this, isn't it? Then you go down, <laughs> down again. And this went on for whatever the length of this uh, boat journey was, two or three hours, I would remember. And, you know, there's quite, you know, some, you can imagine some degree of um, anxiety you know, I mean, there's a whole new 
interpretation of rising and falling. <laughs> and this experience of going up and uh, going down, and on the, on the boat, the general kind of feeling of passing through this uh, experience, and uh, as he was recalling a similar experience in the Philippines, that in going through this and having, as it were, passed through something, it was quite difficult and uh, life, in fact, life-threatening, life because there's always a fear that the next wave, the wave would actually collapse straight on top of the boat and, uh, and that would be it. And having gone through such experience, when one got off the boat, there was such a, a sense of appreciation and relief, sheer, you know, sheer relief, that it brought this kind of closeness and intimacy and, and friendship amongst everybody who was on, on that boat, who made that kind of journey. And somehow or other it seems to me that in our living in the world and travelling through, through the world, that travelling lightly in the world gives us the opportunity to make contact in, with ourselves and with others and with the world around in, ver in, in countless situations, in very intimate ways and which we can't do when we're travelling loaded down with baggage physically in baggage, and in this case particularly psychological baggage There's another aspect too with this travelling uh, travelling lightly in the world and, and this at the internal level and again it's about our attitude and our relationships and that very much I feel focuses around roles and the kind of roles that we have and unfortunately with roles and and we're, all, we're in constant changing role. One of the things which I notice, and it's terribly sad to see, is how seriously one takes roles. And roles require certain ser seriousness, roles with responsibility, roles of serving other human beings. But sometimes it's just taken to excess. And the role becomes a weight, it becomes a, a, a baggage, and we, and we get so caught up in our little scenario, which is being played through our particular role. Whether that's the role of, of being uh, in one's if one works, uh, in the work situation, or the role in the relationship, or the you know, parenting and partnering, whether it's the role of studying, whether it's the role of um, the meditator, all the kind of roles that we go through. Very easily we, we, we put ourselves into a kind of shell and label ourselves in this particular role. And it's necessary, it seems to me, to stop and ask ourselves, am I in stuck in my role? 
And have I got, you know, is, is it that I only know myself via a particular scenario? And if I do, if I sense that somehow I'm caught in that, what it means is that one can feel in the absence of tremendous sense of worthlessness or unpleasant or unsatisfactory feelings because I don't know it myself except through what I do. I was listening, I mean watching, which rather, um, well it amuses me a little bit. Um, the last few days there has been in uh, Washington, as a number of you know, this signing of a INF um, treaty, which is basically to reduce some of the massive number of nuclear weapons on our planet. And so after a lot of haggling, you know, which is something very simple, nuclear weapons are unnecessary, they can easily do a quick count, get rid of them. No, no they, they, they spread it out, you know, they make it so complicated, you know, which something is very, 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 very simple, you know, that people, you know, um, and politicians, they're just not mature enough to play with such dangerous toys. And so they finally have come to an agreement. An agreement says we will get rid of some of these nuclear weapons and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And except the weapon makers. And the agreement is, in fact, I think it's about 4% only of the nuclear weapons are actually... But it's a start. It's a, it's a, um, a beginning and whatever. And during it, I was... There's been some interest in this man, um, um, Gorbachev. And when he says quite a lot of things, but one thing which I heard him uh, say, which I quite appreciated, and I thought it was rather worth quoting, um, the, there was a, a press conference, and the English um, reporter from one of the TV people here said to um, Gorbachev, um, you seem characteristically different from these other, the previous um, Russian leaders. You seem much more talkative and, and open and honest and etc., and etc. Et and, uh, and he said, and the reporter said, um, and then Seeing this, he says, it seem, you seem quite um, different from the, the, the previous ones. And uh, Gorbachev's res response to it, so it was said to him, are you saying that um, being normal is being different? <laughs> I thought I'd rather perceptive question. <laughs> and what struck me with that was that, um, and incidentally, I like watching body language on, on the, with these people, and he's one of, the only, one of the only politicians that I've ever seen who is able to laugh from his stomach and not just from his throat. 
considerable achievement. So, anyway, that's just a personal... Um, <laughs> right. and, and it seems to me that when we start carrying baggage and it weighs us down, what actually is normal actually is perceived to be rare. Is perceived to be special, is perceived to be something worth striving for. And we make this kind of gap between, oh my God, where I am, and all this stuff I'm carrying, and all this I've got to let go of, and so on and so forth. And we create in our mind, this is how I want to be. I want to be, travel lightly, be spacious, be loving, be this, be that. And we make this gap in such a way that we've got to do all these terribly serious things <laughs> to try to bridge the gap somehow. And it's incredibly hard work looking at things like that. And really, it seems to me, what's really is, you know, question, do we want to carry this baggage? Do you want to really interpret it as, as, as baggage? Why not just allow one day just to unfold as it does, with or without the baggage? Why not just live, take one day at a time and not take it too, too intensely and dogmatically and seriously and just let it get, it, let it get underway? and see with a kind of interest and a, of what unfolds out of it. I not feel I've got to do this and I have to achieve that and my life is going by and I've got to get into something, etc. This, this, to me, just, it just smells of pressure and, and control and unhappiness. And, and, and in a way, if you, if we can't take things lightly, if we can't take things up lightly, I say don't take them up at all. If you can't do it lightly, don't bother with it. It's not worth it. Any kind of role, any kind of responsibility, any kind of interest, any kind of activity, or to treat it all very lightly. And one may think, my God, this is a philosophy of flippancy, or, uh, or uh, avoidance, or um, not dealing with things. When we look at the world with all these heavy people and these responsibilities, and, and it's hardly an, uh, an advertisement, is it, for, uh, for uh, joy in life? And, and it seems to me that if we are get the sense of travelling lightly, out of us will come more of a, an opportunity for a caring life, and a, a feeling life, and a loving life, and a communication life, and the kind of roles that you and I have 
really peripheral, hardly, hardly relevant to it. Just simple vehicles serving as an opportunity for travelling lightly and being just who we are. About a week ago, I went nearby to um, Dartington Hall, where the trust there was putting on, as it has been over the few weeks now, months now, um, a series of public talks. And one of the people who was speaking, who I particularly wanted to go to um, listen to, was... Um, was the Archbishop, um, what's his name? Hmm? Yes, Archbishop Anthony Bloom. He was the head of the Russian Orthodox Church in Britain and man of unusual um, life experiences. Parents, Russian diplomats in Persia, he is trained in medicine at the Sorbonne. He was in the French Resistance and was a school teacher by day and in the underground at night. He's worked with the dying and the bereaved for many years here in uh, England and his writings are extremely perceptive. And he was recalling in a talk on bereavement how two young Russians in the post-revolution um, uh, period were fighting the, in fact, fighting the, uh, the, the Leninists, the, the communists. And this couple in their particular ideology were there in the battlefield and the young man accidentally shot his loved one, his girlfriend with whom he was deeply in love, and killed her. And the degree of pain and remorse and loss shook him emotionally from head to foot. And he carried with him this weight of and burden of, of guilt and he had tried every means to rid himself of this horrendous guilt feeling and the weight which went along with it. And he went to see Antony Bloom, the Archbishop, and he told him that he was now in his 80s and he'd never had in 60 years, more than 60 any peace from this um, nightmare accident and he said he prayed he'd uh, confessed he'd, he'd um, been through all the channels he'd appealed to God he'd sort of suicide he'd, he'd gone through everything his whole life and it 
tortured him that he could never have any other close intimate relationships and so on and so on and so on. And Antony Bloom said that what he said, and he just came out of Antony Bloom. So what he said was to this man, this old man, he said to him, have you asked her forgiveness? Did it ever occur to you actually ask her forgiveness? Because he said that love, this is Bloom, said love is such a wondrous element, it conquers all. It's so great in, its, in what it is that, it, that, it's, that death, which is, appears to be the conqueror of all, isn't conquered by love. And when one thinks of love, it's not love of the past or whatever it might be, but love is an, uh, as a living presence and force. Is it, did, you, did you ask her forgiveness? Did you need to turn and ask her forgiveness? Because she still lives for you. And because she lives for you, therefore you can ask her forgiveness. And this man, in 60 years, it had never struck him. He never thought that way to actually ask his loved one. And of course, he asked. And it was okay. And this weight, this burden, this weight, it, it, was, it was dispelled. And so this traveling lightly and all the um, diversity of what it, what it means is really one, one might almost say and that might be an example of it say well in a way it's how we think about things is the, is, makes the difference how we think about material world how we think about roles, how we think about our so-called star, how we think about the past, really makes the difference between weight and lightness. And we may say, well, I would like to think in a different way, etc., etc. And perhaps the process of community, being together like this, the processes of meditation, the processes of, of the impact of silences, the process of being still, keeps in ways which you and I can't comprehend, affecting the way we think. And we don't know how it works, and our thought can't explain what's happening but somehow the impact of it there influences thinking and therefore speech and therefore interest, therefore activities. And somehow gives us some opportunity and willingness to experience being light travellers on the planet, with the planet. And that, that sense, for, sense for that, I think one of the ways that it shows itself for us is that we don't want to put baggage onto other people either. 
We don't want to lo- unload or load our stuff onto another. And that's love. And finally, with this travelling lightly, in this travelling lightly, also includes a relationship to the world, and I hesitate to use the concept of um, innocence, but um, um, a way of experiencing the, the world in which one really senses in life that no other human being has got the answer for oneself. And one may not, and this is where the innocence comes in, and one may know equally as well, and I hope we do know equally as well, that we also haven't got the answer. It's one thing looking outside and and thinking that someone has got it and it's going to give it, which to me is a total waste of existence. And it's just as easy to be polarised the other way and say, well, it's all in me and one can spend morning, noon and night meditating on whatever inside and cherish that particular kind of belief. And I think to have a reference point outside or inside, here or there, isn't travelling lightly at all. I think it's carrying. And this is where this innocence and sense of uh, mystery and awe and all that the silences can communicate to us really are precious. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings travel lightly.